This week, AMC lenders organize, endo discontinue cellulite drug quo, reverse mortgage $125 million dip approved on interim basis, Zantac multi-district litigation judge grants summary judgment in favor of rantadine manufacturers. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. This week, with borrowing rates hovering around 30-year highs, we feature a replay from the Reorg Primary Review series, where Christopher Maloney, mortgage strategist at Bank of Oklahoma Financial and Reorg's James Holloway discuss stresses in the housing market, mortgage lenders, and Fed policy. It's Friday, December 9th. According to sources, AMC Entertainment Holdings lenders have organized again as the movie theater chain continues to burn a significant amount of cash and its liquidity runway comes to question. Firstly, lenders are working with Gibson Dunn as counsel, and secondly, lenders are receiving advice from Milbank as legal advisor and Perla Weinberg as financial, the sources said. Sources say that secondly, note holders are exploring options for the movie theater chain to raise capital and potentially delever, and the creditors may propose incurring debt at an unrestricted subsidiary, which would be collateral leakage for firstly lenders. The company burned $278 million of free cash flow in the third quarter, bringing its year-to-date free cash burn to $725 million. New York estimates pro forma liquidity of $767 million as of September 30th, down a billion from $1.8 billion at the beginning of the year. AMC's LTM adjusted EBITDA through September 30th of $191 million is only 25% of 2019 levels. Even if this number improves materially, AMC could still burn cash in 2023 unless box office performance exceeds expectations. On Wednesday, the Endo debtors filed a notice indicating that their bidding procedure's approval hearing has been postponed to January 19th from December 15th. According to the notice, Judge James Garrity ordered the hearing adjourned during a closed status conference in chambers on Monday, December 5th. The official committee of unsecured creditors requested the status conference and the adjournment, suggesting that more time should be allowed for a potential alternative to the sale to come together. Additionally, Endo International on Tuesday announced that it will cease production and sale of Quo, a drug used to treat cellulite. After careful consideration, we have determined that Quo does not represent a viable commercial opportunity for Endo, the company said in a statement. Debtors filed a motion on Wednesday to approve the cessation of production and marketing efforts for Quo and related one-time charges in their Chapter 11 proceeding. Debtors estimate $50 million to $60 million annual savings, $15 million to $20 million in one-time charges, and $220 million to $230 million in asset impairment. According to the motion, continued production and marketing of Quo would result in a material loss of value for stakeholders, as the company would not, in that circumstance, continue to employ a sales force and invest in marketing for a product the company believes will not be successful or profitable. Debtors add that a standalone sale of Quo intellectual property could lead to suboptimal outcomes because the debtors use the same trade secrets to produce the drug Zeaflex and Quo. Debtors say they intend to sell Quo IP along with Zeaflex IP in their current Section 363 sale process. On Thursday, Bloomfield, New Jersey-based reverse mortgage funding obtained interim approval of its revised dip financing package after continuing the matter from last week's first day hearing while the facility's terms were still under negotiation. Total dip financing amount of up to $124.5 million consists of $44.5 million in dip notes with the lender group under the pre-petition Hall Loan Agreement and BNGL Holdings as dip lenders, and an $80 million dip tail facility provided by Texas Capital Bank. Proceeds of the dip notes will be subject to a proposed budget that may be further updated by the parties. The company filed for Chapter 11 protection last week, which the company attributed to adverse trends in the reverse mortgage industry, in large part attributable to the rise of interest rates and a reduction in the Federal Reserve's holding of mortgage-backed securities. The debtors said they are seeking to facilitate an orderly transition of assets and implement a wind-down plan. 
On Tuesday, U.S. District Judge Robin Rosenberg in the Southern District of Florida issued an opinion granting summary judgment in favor of Rana Tidine manufacturers in the Zantac multi-district litigation proceeding, rejecting as a matter of law plaintiff's expert testimony on the alleged dangers of the drug. Judge Rosenberg concludes that the only reliable testing method presented by the parties puts the average amount of the carcinogen N-nitrosodimethylamine, or NDMA, in ranitidine at roughly equivalent or slightly higher than the FDA's daily limit, which equates to an infinitesimal unprovable risk of cancer. Although the FDA did request a voluntary recall of the drug in February 2020 because it may contain NDMA in excess of the agency's daily limit of 96 nanograms per deciliter, the judge points out that according to the FDA, one could expect to consume this much NDMA from eating a meal of grilled or smoked meats, and if one were to consume 96 nanograms of NDMA every day for 70 years in succession, the risk of cancer would be 1 in 100,000, or 0.001%. Judge Rosenberg also highlighted that an FDA clinical trial completed in the summer of 2021 found no evidence that renatidine degrades into NDMA in the human body, even when the subject in the study ate a diet rich with salt. Further, the judge notes that many epidemiological studies completed in 2020 and 2021 failed to establish that renatidine causes cancer, and most of the studies concluded that there was not even an association between renatidine and cancer. The judge said that the plaintiff's scientific experts on the amount of NDMA in renatidine and the health dangers of NDMA systematically utilized unreliable methodologies with a lack of documentation on how experiments were conducted, a lack of substantiation for analytical leaps, a lack of statistically significant data, and a lack of internally consistent, objective, science-based standards for the even-handed evaluation of data. Top Red Stories this week included, English High Court grants permission for Credit Suisse to file a $400 million Section 423 transaction and undervalue claim against SoftBank. Supreme Court wrestles with appellate review of bankruptcy sale. Assignment orders at oral argument on transform MOAC lease dispute. BNA asked Sixth Circuit to resurrect claim against Goldman Sachs for refusing to consent to Ruby Tuesday's collateral assignment. Goldman Sachs has secured lenders of unfettered rights to withhold consent for any reason or no reason. Crypto bloodbath continues as BlockFi files. U.S. companies struggling with higher costs, cautious consumers, banks in Europe seeks to de-risk before year-end. China releases third-hour equity financing for real estate companies. Kathy Ta is out this week, so I'll be covering the week ahead from Forest Hills, New York. On Monday, Sanofi will seek to overturn the Mallinckrodt Bankruptcy Court's denial of their motion seeking determination that the debtors cannot reject their obligation to pay royalties for sales of Akhtar gel on their appeal before the district court. Also Monday, we'll be listening to, into oral arguments on Bombardier's bid to dismiss 2023 note holders Antara and Corbin's $398 million breach of indenture suit against the company. The suit is pending for the New York Supreme Court. On Tuesday, the generics price-fixing conspiracy multi-district litigation against generic drug makers including Teva, Lanet Company, Amniol Pharmaceuticals, and Dr. Reddy's Laboratories. U.S. District Judge Cynthia Roof will conduct a final hearing on approval of the $85 million settlement between direct purchaser class plaintiffs and defendant Sun Pharmaceuticals and Terra Pharmaceuticals. The settlements are the first on behalf of any private plaintiff in the MDL and the first settlements reached by direct purchaser plaintiffs. 
Talent Energy Corp. heads to court on, to, on Wednesday to seek confirmation of their amended Chapter 11 plan, which is expected to be consensual after the debtor struck a deal with the official committee of unsecured creditors, providing for a general unsecured trust funded by $26.05 million in cash and up to $11 million in proceeds from the debtor's $900 million fraudulent transfer litigation against former Talent Montana parent PPL Corp. Non-debtor parent Talent Energy Corp. will be the new parent of the organized debtors under the plan, with TEC to file a Chapter 11 petition in advance of the hearing. On Wednesday in Puerto Rico, Judge Laura Taylor Swain is slated to consider approval of the Puerto Rico Public Finance Corp's qualifying modification on a Title IV PROMESA. Through the qualification modification, PFC would settle its obligations at a discount of about 96%. Beneficial holders of 73.23% of principal outstanding bonds submitted votes to accept the transaction. The aerotechnologies debtors will also be in court on Wednesday to seek an order for a separate bankruptcy court-supervised mediation with the latest supplement to their motion that the aims to resolve the official combat arms claimants committee objections that the Chapter 11 mediation will not conflict with the ongoing 3M combat arms and multi-district litigation mediation. Wednesday, we'll also see the Voyager debtors press for an order compelling Metropolitan Commercial Bank to release a $24 million reserve held in the debtors' operating account intended to cover any deficits in the company's FBO accounts used for customer deposits, warning that without the release, the company may face a liquidity crisis. The bank is willing to release $7.5 million, but seeks to condition any future release on a dollar-for-dollar basis as, as its customers withdraw the remaining FBO funds. On Thursday, Endo will seek bankruptcy court approval to cease production and marketing of cellulite treatment, quote, debtors say that continued production and marketing would result in a material loss of value for stakeholders, while standalone sale of, quote, intellectual property could lead to suboptimal outcomes. Turning to Friday, the FTX debtors will be in court on several motions. First, the debtors will ask for authorization to assume a set of custodial service agreements between debtors Alameda Research, FTX Trading, Clifton Bay Investments, and Bitco Trust Co. as part of their efforts to secure digital assets. The County of Miami-Dade, Florida, will move forward on its motion for relief from the IMAX state to terminate its stadium naming rights agreement with FTX U.S., saying that the county has no choice but to do so in face of the company's recent collapse and ensuing regulatory, civil, and criminal investigations. Also on Friday, the GWG Holdings debtors and the Special Committee of the GWG Board are slated to seek authorization to enter into mediation as a means to get to a consensual plan as quickly as possible. Also on Friday, reorganized Mesquite Energy, formerly known as Sanchez Energy, will head to court to seek approval of a settlement resolving various disputes with the Sanchez parties for $2 million. This week, with borrowing rates hovering around 30-year highs, we feature a replay from the Reorg Primary View series, where Christopher Maloney, mortgage strategist at Bank of Oklahoma Financial, and Reorg's James Holloway discuss stresses in the housing market, mortgage lenders, and Fed policy. In this week's episode, we're proud to welcome Christopher Maloney. Mr. Maloney is a grizzled veteran of over a quarter century in the quarters of capitalism, having worked for Prudential Securities, Lehman Brothers, and Newberger Berman, and most recently and currently at the Bank of Oklahoma Financial, where he is their mortgage strategist. Now, during one stretch of this fascinating life's journey, Mr. Maloney and I were thrown together, sitting elbow to elbow for seven years, staring at screens full of prices divisible by sixteenths. Of course, I'm a proud son of the Deep South, and he's a native of the Bronx, so we required subtitles for the first four. Okay, Mr. Maloney, thank you for joining us. Housing is, of course, one of the major drivers of economic activity in this fair land of freedom, the American dream, and all that. Lately, though, there's been some headwinds. Mortgages are at a 30-year high. Um, what is going on, and why is it going on? Hey, first off, thank you for having me. And it's good to uh, link up again. It's always good to hear your voice. 
And uh, if, if you look at mortgage rates right now, they're over 7%. And, and that strikes people as very, very high because they've increased very quickly. At the end of last year, they were 3.35% was where the 30-year mortgage rate is at. Now, right now, 7%, while it seems like a lot, the reason is people still remember not even a little over two years ago, the mortgage rate was at 2.75%, which was a record low. But people need to understand that was a historic aberration that was bought on just because of Fed monetary policy moves. However, that being said, even though 7% on a historical basis is still a very low 30-year lending rate, that's that brings us a dramatic increase in monthly prepayments as things stand now. So you look at the skyrocketing out of cost for any would-be American homeowner to purchase a home now. The median price for an existing home sale is about 400000 That compares to 314000 back in January 2021 when lending rates were at record lows. So the necessary down payment has increased, if you want to get to your 20%, has increased by $21,500. In addition, your monthly payment on that home has shot higher. In January 2021, the median price of an existing home is $314,000, assuming a 20% down payment and that 2.75% rate, your monthly mortgage payment was about $1,000. Now, an existing home's median price, about $400,000 with your 20,000, 20% down payment. Your mortgage per month is about $2,000. And that's before property taxes, maintenance, keeping your idiot neighbor's dog out of your rose bushes. So what that's going to do now, we've seen home prices slow down because people are less able to afford a house at 7% than they are at two and three quarter percent. So we believe that you're going to see housing demand go down the price spectrum from the higher priced homes to the lower priced homes in each area. But this is what happened during QE4. The Fed poured $3.1 trillion of buying power directly into the mortgage market. That easily beats all three previous quantitative easing episodes combined. So we're just getting back to normal is basically my point. Okay. Well, thank you. That's interesting. Um, I guess I sort of remember 2008, 2009. You probably do as well. So I guess what people are going to, the question that comes to mind, are we on the verge of a collapse like we saw in those years? I'm, I'm a fixed income person by nature. I've been that way my entire career. So by my nature, I'm a, I'm a glass half empty type of guy. But I will admit a, a housing collapse, a repeat of what we saw after the great financial crisis is not something that keeps me awake at night. If you remember between the, the high in 2006 to the bottom in 2017 on a national, 2013, excuse me, on a national basis, home prices fell in total about 33%. Now, there's reasons I don't think that happened. I'll take it one step at a time. This most recent housing mania we had was a perfect storm. So a confluence of very easy money from the Fed, the QE4, I 
spoke to. You had a desperate limited supply of homes. And at the same time, you had people fleeing from the urban areas to get away from COVID. Now, by limited supply, unlike back in the 2008, 2009, we're about three to four million single family homes short in this country right now. The reason being, if you look at the QE error, QE started back in was 2010, I believe is when it kicked off, if memory serves. The QE error with the zero interest rate policy has been an absolute disaster for single family home stocks in this country. And I don't use that word disaster lightly. If you look at the average home building in every decade since the 1950s, from 2010 through 2019, the average annual rate of home building fell to about 680,000 units per year. The average in the 50 years prior to that was about 1.1 to 1.2 million single family home starts a year. So the supply of new homes just isn't out there right now on a national basis. So that will help keep a floor under prices. In addition to that, if you look at this latest housing mania, I refer to it as the rich man's housing boom. What happened at the very beginning is mortgage lenders, they tightened credit. And that, that's what you're supposed to do into a housing mania. They were actually very prudent this time. If you look at the debt to income ratios of homeowners, you look at the FICO score of homeowners, they never deteriorated like they did in the boom back during the great financial crisis when you could get a mortgage just because you fogged the mirror. Credit standards right now still remain tight. They're still tightening standards. And this is a good thing. This is prudence. So for, you know, if you're investing in homes on a national basis, I expect home prices will slow I expect home price appreciation of zero to negative 5% next year. But bottom line is I do not expect a wave of foreclosures and forced selling this time around. Again, this was a rich man's housing boom. Another thing going forward this will cause is mobility is going to drop. You have a lot of people out there in very low um, mortgage rates right now. They'll be reluctant to give up. And, you know, people still remember 10, 15 years ago what happened in housing. So people are a lot more cautious than they were back in the day. Okay, well, thank you. Very interesting. I guess, um, what does this mean? I, I guess two, two things, both for consumers, who are, of course, the big driver of the American economy, and what does it mean for investors? If there's an undersupply of, of housing, that would augur well for the home builders and for others in, uh, the, in related in industries, wouldn't it? You, you'd think for home builders themselves, it's funny because now you look at the last 15 years when they just literally, they well, not literally, but they, they really stopped building homes in a, in, a, in a dramatic fashion. So... I think one of the reasons home builders are under stress, because you, you look at, for example, California, a regular, everyday, boring three-bedroom ranch in the San Jose area goes for about $1.2 million. That should have every single home builder within the United States piling their workforce into vans and heading out to the West Coast. But they're not. Why not? Why are so many locales within the United States desperately short of housing? 
And this is not an economic, it's not a market failure. It's what I call a political failure. A lot of reasons homes aren't being built is because they're simply not allowed to between regulations, taxes, California, again, they are the poster boy for not letting anybody build anything for any reason. You look at their urban areas, L.A., San Francisco, most of the landmass in those cities are only zoned for single family housing, which with that type of population density, that makes it prohibitively expensive both to build and to own a home. So that's the deal with home builders. One thing I believe you're going to see is that the demand for housing is going to go down further down the price spectrum because what i alluded to before with your average mortgage monthly payment skyrocketing people instead of going for the eight hundred thousand seven hundred thousand dollar house are going to start looking at the five hundred thousand dollar house six hundred thousand dollar house i believe that's where your demand is going to go and another thing that's going to happen is the mobility as i alluded to is going to start dropping because people are sitting on very low interest rates and they're looking around at houses and thinking, I don't want to catch a falling knife buying a house now. So you're going to see home improvement stocks, in my view, will actually benefit from this because if you're not going to move, you might as well fix up your house. You might as well lay in an extension. So that's one thing we might see going forward. If you're investing in mortgage lenders, such as Quicken, Loan Depot, there's going to be a lot of stress in the mortgage lending industry going forward because the last two years were an absolute feast from QE4. It jolted the housing market. That's what happens when you pour trillions of dollars right directly into a sector. It booms. But if you look at 2020 and 2021 in terms of both gross and net production for agency mortgage bonds, they average about three times the run rate that you saw in the previous half decade. So there's going to be a dramatic slowdown in the business they see. There's going to be a lot of layoffs and consolidations in that industry. If you look the past two quarters for independent mortgage bankers, their gross profit per loan was negative. Last quarter, it was negative $600 per loan. Two years ago, it was positive $5,550 per loan. What's happened within their industry, what they look at is the refinancings have dried up because mortgage rates were artificially put, put so low that so many Americans right now have no incentive to refinance their mortgage or cash out. So in turn, the mortgage lenders themselves have no business to do. If, if you look just at Americans in 30-year mortgages right now, about one third of the unpaid balance of all 30-year mortgages are sitting with Americans who are paying 3% or less on their mortgages. Previous to QE4, nobody paid that low. So you have a dramatic lock-in of homeowners who have no incentive to refinance. So if you're looking at mortgage lenders over the next few years, I would look at ones who have a lot of cash on their balance sheet, and also ones who have a lot of what we call mortgage servicing rights. That gives you the right to service a mortgage. They're the ones that get your monthly check, divide it up, keep track of your mortgage, and you tend to get a mortgage servicing fee for that. And that's the ones that'll be able to keep themselves afloat going forward. 
Okay, thank you. Interesting. <clears throat> now, um, I guess the big question is for a lot of people thinking about a couple of weeks ago, we had a somewhat tame CPI print. And of course, this morning we saw the US PMI move into recessionary territory. That was at least in November. And so some market participants are starting to think that, well, maybe in December's meeting, the Fed will only increase 50 basis points rather than 75. Of course, then we've seen a number of the governors, Bullard, I think, uh, be trotted out to make the usual bearish noises. Uh, do you have a sense about high, about how high Fed funds will get, and uh, when the Fed, the Fed may pivot back to a easier money regime? I think when I sit with a lot of our clients, speak to a lot of our clients, one thing I believe is dangerous for the market, where, where current yields are right now is everybody is desperately waiting for the Fed to refill the punch bowl and come riding to the rescue of security markets. And that's an understandable thought, because if you look over the past you know, decade and a half, that's exactly the Fed's mode of operation. Every time there's a slowdown on Wall Street, they come piling back into the market. The difference between now and then is even with the CPI surprise on the low side, 7.7% annualized CPI is not something the Fed can ignore. They cannot pivot to start easy money policy again anytime soon. So I'm looking at a terminal rate right now, in my view, of 5.5% Fed funds target by the end of the first quarter, because I believe you might see CPI again, assuming the Fed doesn't pivot between now and then. I think you'll see CPI readings in around the 5% arena by then, because if you watch the money supply, the money supply over the past six months has dropped dramatically. During QE4, the overall money supply in this country shot about 42% higher just in two years. That is a mind-boggling increase in the amount of purchasing power pushed into the economy. Now, the Fed can very easily jolt purchasing power. They have the ability to do that because they can create bank reserves out of absolutely nothing. But that only affects the demand side of things, not the supply side. And they jammed so much new money supply into the economy, which was supply constrained due to all the lockdowns. And that sparked the inflation you see now. Besides that, if you watch, everyone's looking at PPI, CPI, because that's what the news and that's what Congress looks at. But the Fed itself, they watch PCE core. That's their favorite inflation gauge. And if you look at that gauge, it has increased over the past two readings to 5.2% annualized. That next reading comes out on December 1st, and I believe that is the one you should keep an eye on because that's the one the Fed uses to guide itself. And that being said, the Fed, is, the Fed we have now is a very, very, very cautious entity when it comes to reducing accommodation. When it comes to granting accommodation, all bets are off. They, they, they're very, very aggressive but they are the opposite now. So I believe at this point, they're raised to 5.5% terminal rate by the end of the first quarter. And between that and the roll off from its immense balance sheet that it accumulated during QE4, they will sit on their hands and see how inflation reacts going forward from there. I do not expect, expect any Fed easing 
anytime soon, at least until the second half of next year. And that all depends, again, on what inflation is going to do. Both Powell and all the governors have been adamant. Price stability comes first before anything else. And in that, I agree with them. QE4, in my view, is a horrendous mistake. And right now, with the tightening, the Fed is cleaning up the mistake they made. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Mr. Maloney. A lot to brood on there as we battle the tryptophan haze from all the leftover turkey. Appreciate your time, and we will see what happens. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next Friday.